Well, welcome to the Monroe Live podcast, and we have a guest today, David Byron from Sunberg Farrar. And I have to say, before you get started, I am jealous of your experience and the opportunities that you've been able to have. So please tell our guests what you've been able to do in the automotive industry or in industry in general. Well, thanks for having me on. And this is a, a, a real pleasure to meet with the Monroe team and uh, something that we've been talking about. Uh, our companies have been partnered for the last couple of years on a few projects, and we've really enjoyed building this relationship and we complement each other really well. So I do represent the fine arts side, the uh, industrial design side of the equation. You guys have absolutely expertise in engineering. Um, so kind of a little background then on myself in the studio that uh, I work at at Summer Ferrar. I, I wanted to be a car designer as a kid, like a lot of people do. And I, I lived on the East Coast through my middle school and high school years. And there's no car design <laughs> over in uh, New Jersey where I lived. And I didn't really even know what that career path was. And and I thought I was going to be an engineer. You know, most people, as you're going through high school and you say you want to design something, you start having to take physics and calculus classes and tech drawing classes. And, and I was, though, the one who was always obsessed with how cars looked. And I really just got fortunate enough to find a book at Barnes & Noble that said how to draw cars like a pro. And I got that book, and I just started copying it. And in the very back cover, the author says, if you're interested in this as a career, look at the College for Creative Studies in Detroit or Art Center in Pasadena. And so I was a junior in high school. I looked up CCS on the Internet, saw the clay models and the sculpting of the designs, and I told my parents, this is where I'm going to college. I never visited Detroit. I applied to it. It was the only school I even applied to. I packed up my 1992 Firebird and moved to Detroit, sight unseen, and I've been here for 23 years. Haven't left, love it, and uh, and so yeah, I've been through a lot of ups and downs. I was into the industry before the crash of 08, and you know, have my war stories that a lot of people do have <laughs> getting through that. And um, I've been here at Sunbrook Farrar for 10 years now, just past 10 years, a couple months ago. Um, so I'd love to, yeah, keep that going and, and talk a little bit about what we do there and the diversity, but it's been a, it's been a great journey. I love Detroit. I love Motor City. I love cars. So, so what do you do at Sunburg for all now? What's your role? I am the director of innovation strategy. So that means that I'm looking at projects from a very high level. What is the future of? So if, if, if that's an unended statement, if there's a dot, dot, dot at the end of that, that's where I really get excited. And I spent years, heads down, headphones on, drawing, designing, CAD modeling, and oftentimes would ask the question, is this even the right thing we should be working on? Does anybody really need this? Um, and and so there's, you know, a movement of design thinking that we all kind of have lived through over the last few decades. I, you know, grew up through that in the design schools and, and the process of, of what design thinking was. And coming to Summer Farrar, um, they have their own uh, method that I started to learn under um, one of the previous uh, uh, vice presidents and I'm and, and now leading that. And it's really the point of saying, if you're a new business and you're looking to grow before you spend millions of dollars in R&D, have you looked at the opportunities in the market? Have you looked at your own strengths and weaknesses? Can you connect the dots and make a decision on what you should put pencil to paper on? before you just start running after somebody's, you know, 
I got an idea, executive says, and all of a sudden, you know, four and a half million dollars later, you're like, mm, nobody really wanted that. <laughs> so that's what our innovation strategy effort is, is to kind of take a strategic look at that. What should we innovate? And then I help move that through our, our partnerships and our design and engineering team and prototype team into tactical projects. So when you say innovation, now in my past life, I worked in research and innovation. The problem was, however, I worked in a tier one. So we could innovate our processes, which was almost the only thing that we ever actually got into production was process innovation. Or we could innovate by coming up with some new product. But the problem is being in tier one, we have to sell that product in order to actually build tooling and go forward. Mm -hmm. And it was very difficult for me to find a customer who was willing to purchase an innovation project. But you come at it from a different point of view because you're not the actual manufacturer. You are a source and you are a partner that helps either the OEM or the tier one or anyone else in general. Right. So when we say innovation, what is the scope of innovation for you? You're, you're right that we are partners at both levels. So I often will have a material science client who's trying to say, Hey, we have this amazing material and we need to get it into tier twos or tier ones. And we also come at it as partners with OEMs who are looking at completely new market opportunities to grow outside of their traditional portfolio. So we can be coming at this top down or bottom up approaches. And our engagement, what our value is, is that we're going to bring in a, a diverse team, researchers, designers, and we have uh, engineers on our teams as well. And we'll come in and really augment a client's team. Because so many times people are, you know, looking at next quarter or their next five SKUs. And it's really hard to take an internal team and break away and look at a totally divergent area or a new business unit. Could we create a new business model? Or how do we tell the story? I've had a lot of clients that are absolute intimidating experts to me. I walk into a room with five PhD scientists. I don't know anything about what they do. And yet, after some conversation, I can help figure out how to tell the impact of what they do. So a lot of times, really good design is just good storytelling, right? What is the meaning? What's the value to their client, whether it's an OE or a tier one? They're trying to, you know, get out of the, the muck of your lab reports. And, you know, some scientists just oh my gosh, we are, we are the best product that's ever been invented. And, and you look at their sales deck and the third slide of the deck is lab studies. And they're trying to pitch that and you've got some product manager going, is anybody going to pay for that? <laughs> so those are the kind of engagements we might get into from a strategic perspective. And that leads to, it eventually gets to a tactical innovation so, so project. Do you, have, do you have any examples you can share? Yeah. Um, a great example that is a company people know of is, is Alcoa, right? Now Arconics and how they've split that off in the last couple of years. But Alcoa is the number one aluminum company in the world. And they make semi-truck wheels, you know? And so there's steel wheels and there's aluminum wheels and they're a premium product. And they were listening to their sales team in Asia and trying to innovate by just, hey, the sales manager in in China says this is what we need over there and they put their engineers to work and spent millions of dollars developing prototype semi-truck wheels sent them over there whoops nobody wanted that so they kind of said well I think we missed the mark so that's where we get a call and they called us and said can you 
redefine the problem statement. And, and so I spent 13 days in China going to maintenance facilities, riding on semi-trucks that were breaking down and, and talking to dealers and distributors. And, and we looked at it from a problem-solving perspective. What is the real need here? And then we came back to the, to the U.S. We met with their engineering team. We scoped it all out and we re, uh, you know, re-envisioned their statement of work. What should they be designing on? And at no point of that am I an aluminum, you know, molecular scientist like their team is. But we had to reframe what the problem was. And, and yeah, they, they had missed it. And they were uh, interesting. That's a, it's a great story because they actually um, were missing the translated interpretation of safety. Simple as that. And they were listening to their sales team translate safety. And we as Americans, when we hear safety, we think of humans. Safety means personal safety. And they were actually not at all talking about humans at all. They were talking about the truck as an asset, the safety of the truck. And they were catching on fire. And, and you know, what can aluminum do to reduce uh, heat dissipation quickly? And so it was totally the wrong starting point even to identify what the problem was. So that's where we come in from a research, design thinking, strategy perspective. Um, our process is called Genesis and, and, and the reason it's called Genesis because you got to go to the beginning, the origin of the story, to then build out what what uh, you really want to do with that. Um, so that's a great you know, example. So you say that your experience or you got your start wanting to design vehicles, wanting to actually put pen to paper. But from what you just explained to me, none of that, even though it was innovation, was actually designing something. It was understanding the concept and helping a customer to actually understand what direction do you need to go, what problem are you going to solve. So for me, that gets towards maybe some of that process innovation. Why are you doing it? When we get back into design innovation, there's a couple of different things. There's the aesthetic design, which is where your passion started out. Then there's the functional design. And in my thinking, a good functional design should be common sense when you see it. When you see it, it normally would not look revolutionary. It should look simple, mm -hmm. which is why normally good functional designs don't really get recognized for what they are. Because until the first person thinks of that, it was complex before. So solving for complexity and understanding that type of a scope, what can you say about that? I definitely believe in simplicity as a design principle because... Um, yeah, the, the example I just gave was one where we ended that project, that partnership with redefining the scope. But we had another one that was began in research, and it was in um, plasma cutters. So I personally never designed a plasma cutter before. And the number two company in the market came to us and said, we want to be number one. And they couldn't figure out why they couldn't get to number one. And... So they believed in their product and they said, well, we have the best plasma cutter on the market. It delivers the best cut. It's the highest precision. And yet we can't get to number one. Can you help us figure that out? So we go out and we talk to people. We went to different industries. We went to expert users, novice users. We actually went over overseas to check the differences between U.S. versus other markets. And it all came down to simplicity. The number one brand automated two of the five settings that are normally on a plasma cutter. Their product had all five settings for you to dial in just right. But 
guess what happens when you have five settings? You have five ways to screw it up. And the competitor only gave you three and automated two of them. So the answer was truthfully, yes, their product could get you a better cut in the hands of an absolute expert. But how many shops around town have a staff of experts? They got guys just coming in, rotating and shifting, you know, and just pulling out that plasma cutter, firing it up, and they're burning through the consumable. And so when you burn through consumables faster to a business owner, you want the one with the least amount of burn rate on the consumables. And it just came down to that simplicity. And I was like, oh, my gosh, if you just average out two of those settings, you're going to get a better average cut and everybody's going to be happier. So that was a great example of simplicity and understanding how people actually use the product. And then we got into the UI. We got into the design of that one. So designing a different interface, designing what information does a novice need versus what an expert needs. And then understanding what's our market position. Do you want to go after the niche and sell to the experts? There's guys out there that want five buttons. But that's not going to be the number one volume in the market. So if you want to go after the volume play, it's a different product. So I, 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 I know what you're saying about the simplicity, and sometimes it goes unnoticed. Yeah, I mean, you normally glance over simplicity, and you don't see that as being innovative or of a value, but it really, really is in the long term and also for the product. And everybody knows the saying, less is yeah. more, right? Sometimes less is more, but it's really actually hard to do that. So you've been able to work with a lot of different industries, not just automotive, many, many different industries. But, of course, we do have a focus for automotive on this channel. Now, in the automotive space, I know you have some experience there, but you're also looking forward. And I assume in your company, you're always looking forward so that you can have something to offer the next customer who may have a question or an idea. Where do you see yourself at right now, and what are some things that you're looking forward to? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll mention probably the most forward-looking project that has gone on for probably five to seven years now since we began this journey uh, with Hyundai. And this is, this is where it started with one of those great what-if questions. And it was a conversation with um, someone in their ventures team. So they've got, you know, big OEs have teams outside of just their day-to-day car studio teams that are looking at different technologies and different innovation and where can we grow and, and what are new adjacencies we could get into. And we had already done something in the mass transit market with uh, Hyundai's team because they, they make trains. They have a Rotem division that, you know, because Hyundai Motor Global is so big, they, uh, they had questions about mass transit. And this was right around eight years ago when, like, Hyperloop one of the Elon Musk topics, you know, they put out that white paper for Hyperloop and everybody got all crazy. And there's a couple startups that have been trying to figure that out. And Hyundai was like, we make trains. Should we be making a Hyperloop? So we did a project with them. And that's one of the things that our firm has, has been really known for over the decades, which is uh, lots of mass transit. Actually, Summer Farrar did the BART train that's still running in San Francisco, the MARTA. Um, so just my first project was rehashing the interior of the Long Island Railroad. Um, so mass transit has been a big thing. So we started with Hyundai on that project, and that was uh, just a uh, you know eight month project. And then the question came in: What do we do when a car's hit its limit for wheeled suspensions? Like right now, off road cars are great, but they they still only have the limitation of the diameter of that tire. At some point, an off road vehicle gets stuck. What if we didn't get stuck? And I started a conversation about: Well, what if a car could walk? 
And you're like, okay, I mean, they do in Transformers movies, but could a car really walk? And so that was one of those, whoa, what does that mean? And how would you do that? And of course, then I would immediately go to, does anybody need that? Does anybody need a car that could walk? <laughs> so before we start trying to like invent a robotic leg and it bolted onto the side of a chassis, why would you need that? So that's a project that was super, you know, futuristic and innovative from a like blue sky perspective. That's probably one of the biggest blue sky questions we've ever been asked. So, so did, did that go anywhere? Yeah. So, so first it had multiple stages of convincing the, you know, executives to continue funding this idea. So you had a, uh, a team at Hyundai Ventures that said, Hey, you know, management's kind of curious about this. Let's, let's do some due diligence and let's just investigate a need. So that's where we just started a very creative use case need. Well, if you, let's just say you had it, let's not even try and invent it first. Let's just say, imagine it already existed. Who would need it? Why would they need it? What would the purpose be? How many people would it you know, fit? And we started going through different future trends. So one of them is autonomous taxis. We know we're trying to live longer in, in our homes, right? We have an aging population that wants to be more independent. And, and what good is an autonomous taxi that's sitting down at the end of their driveway and they live in an apartment brownstone and they can't get from their front step to that autonomous taxi just waiting for them. What if a vehicle could come to your house and then actually crawl over your, you know, three steps or four steps and level itself right at your front door and drop a ramp out and you wheel your wheelchair right into that vehicle, you bolt it down and then it crawls down to the street. Now it's on its way. That's an enabling dream. I mean, it sounds blue sky, but Think about how meaningful that would be for someone who's living by themselves, is, you know, in their 70s, they, they, they can't get down their front steps. Not everybody has an ADA ramp, you know? I mean, we take it for granted in America, it's kind of required, but everybody everywhere in the world is going to be that, you know, enabled for that type of mobility. So that was just one. Then we started thinking, okay, obviously, you know, military would use that. Of course, there's funding there potentially. And then we started thinking about, hey, we're in Michigan. How many times have you seen a car off a ditch? in the snowbank on the side of the highway, it actually didn't hit anything. It's completely stuck. But if it could just stand up three feet and crawl its way back to the road, you'd be back on your way. I really like what you had said in that thought process. Forget about actually inventing it. Let's say that it exists. And how would we be using it today if it existed? I, I never really thought about that in any of the projects that I had worked on, but I, I love that type of thinking. Um, I, I feel like that could really inspire a lot of infant, uh, innovation. Don't worry about the details. Don't worry about how am I getting there. Let's say it exists today. How am I using it? Well, today? and we needed to that. we needed to establish that first to make the question worth another conversation and more funding. You know, I mean, you got you got to convince everybody. Yes, there is a need. Now let's actually get into the weeds on the technical feasibility of it. So it's, it's, it's right. It's not taking an invention and running around with an invention, looking at places to stick that invention. It's understanding, is there a need first? Now let's see if there's something that is worth inventing. And I can see that that would help protect you from getting or running away too early with a product. I don't want to be too disparaging, but I just think when I think of that, someone should have told Segway that. 
remember the big hype. It mm-hmm. is coming. Mm-hmm. It is coming. And then what was it? That was it. And it stayed in mall security and vacation rental areas. Yep. Urban tourism. And it didn't really go anywhere yeah. else. But, but where is the walking car? So there is uh, some real technical feasibility issues with that at scale. It's the scaling issue. So we presented that first, and there were seven well-defined use cases that we outlined in that first project. And that got funding to go on to the next project. We actually then partnered with the University of Michigan's RAM Lab to do some assessment analysis. And we did an entire conceptual design with hydraulics. Mm -hmm. Because about six, seven years ago, when we first started this project, hydraulics were the only thing that could scale to the size of a four to six passenger vehicle. Electric actuators just don't have enough torque at the size and weight because you end up kind of with the elephant effect. You know, the scale thickness of an elephant's legs is exponential to the weight of the body. And same thing with these electric motors. When we started to identify, okay, I have to move a 4,000-pound vehicle and you want to have six joints in that, each of those joints just becomes heavier, and all of a sudden you have this you know, engineered mathematical model where you're trying to pick up a 600-pound foot. Well, that doesn't really work well, right? So hydraulics seemed to be the only option. So we did do a full conceptual design with hydraulics, and we used um, some simulators to say, how fast could I get over a five-foot wall? Could I get over a five-foot wall? And if it took that hydraulic system five minutes, well, this is ridiculous. Nobody's going to use that. Like, nobody's going to have the patience to get over that wall in five minutes. And after we ran through our our virtual simulations, we were able to identify a system that would work and get us over that wall in 24 seconds. So that was funding round number two. Presented that. Oh, you could get over a five-foot wall in 24 seconds? That seems pretty valuable. Somebody might need to do that in a search and rescue scenario or um, uh, getting stranded, X, Y, Z. So so we now had some technical ways to execute it. And while that was going on, and this happens all the time in our work, something else got invented. Some other company came up with a new innovation. And we took everything we had learned, and now we started looking at electric actuators. And there have been huge improvements in electric actuators and higher torque, uh, lighter weight motors. So then we did a round two. And this was what was debuted at CES 2019 was the concept. And it was called Elevate. And uh, that was still where I was designing the vehicle, got the, the awesome opportunity to sketch it out and then build the CAD model and turned it into a prototype. We had our, our robotic engineers at Sunberg for our uh, actually build a scale robot. So it was a car chassis, um, eighth scale with robotic legs. We programmed it and walked it across stage at CES. And it was really cool because we got really into the biomimicry. So animals with four legs walk either like a mammal or a reptile. And they're very actually different based on their hip joint starting uh, axis. And so we said, okay, well, okay, there's benefits for both. Why would you walk like a mammal? It's efficient. Why do animals uh, walk with a horizontal or vertical hip joint? And if you look at some that walk like a reptile, reptilian or or insect-like, they have great lateral stability. So we actually created an articulating hip joint that allowed you to go into both positions. So we thought that was awesome and revolutionary and we actually demonstrated it walking uh, as a reptile and so we presented that and um, through that project 2019 then it turned into okay well let's build a better higher fidelity scale model 
And then we did another version and that was debuted. Oh, we hit the pandemic in 2020. I think it came out that spring, right? And um, and it was called uh, Tiger. And uh, it had a, it was an acronym, um, but it was, a, it was a smaller scale. So now it wasn't going to carry people, but we actually built then a robotic delivery vehicle with a detachable chassis from an electric body and that chassis could be picked up by a drone and now you're getting into the ability to drop off a vehicle so that's about of the, of the table we're sitting at here you know three feet in length and it's fully charged and now you could deliver medical supplies to a team we talked to fire support in california and if that vehicle could have equipment for the firefighters be able to walk around climb over debris and if you had 20 of them out there, one of the most difficult things they have in fire rescue or firefighting is that satellite imagery actually gets blocked by the smoke coverage. Mm-hmm. So they, they use just boots on the ground eyes to report in and get more accurate readings on their mathematical models. So they were, they were like, if you had 20 of these supporting a crew out there and it could be actually spotting to the foot location where that fire is spreading, and then we could augment that with the data we're getting from the satellite that's being blocked by the clouds. They were just really into that. So that gave Hyundai some more interest in like, okay, there's some real value to these smaller scale versions. And that that kind of gave them some of the confidence to, you know, I don't know if you saw, they made an acquisition of Boston Dynamics. So Hyundai purchased Boston Dynamics right after that project. Um, so yeah, was, that's that's been one of the bigger I can't believe I'm working on a real-life transformer <laughs> projects that, that we've had uh, um, because it's, you know, I've, I got to work in a car design studio and doing, you know, cars that are on the road, and, and that's great. But this was like sci-fi almost, but we really turned it into a real project. So the, the Boston Dynamics robots were a bit more better known, I guess, right? So any, any of your innovation in, in their design yet? Well, we didn't work on their products so our projects were going on in parallel, and yes, they're they're fantastic. Those guys are doing amazing stuff. But it was our project going on within Hyundai that was giving their leadership team interest and confidence to kind of move towards that purchase acquisition at the at the time. So yeah, that project uh, has is is one to just oh man, I pinch myself. I can't believe I got to work on that for years. That's wonderful that you were able to work on such a unique project. But here's a question for you. What project haven't you gotten yet that you want? Haven't I? I mean, is there some dream that you would like to be in the group that solved that problem or innovated in that field? Well, that kind of a a question goes like... Infinite. Much more high level (laughs) than... Yeah, I mean, I've got... I, I, I drive a car I designed... I did a supercar at Celine when I was there. I mean, those are like, I had a billboard in New York City's Times Square because it debuted at the New York Auto Show. So like, I feel super lucky to have checked those boxes. So from a mobility or car design uh, perspective, I really move into when you say something like that, I think about like fixing our education system. Okay. Like when I, I'm like, okay, I've got all these skills as a designer and we innovate and I want to solve problems. What's a dream activity for me? It would be something, you know, human centered and impactful like that. But you're going for the world. <laughs> <laughs> and I love every, you know, real just car design or, or I, I mean, I've, at Summer Far, we're really diverse. I mean, we're not just a car design studio. And, you know, we do stuff in Home Depot and I, I have a pair of scissors that, you know, 
our at home depot that we spent, you know, a couple months working. I, mean, I love that. It's just, it's cool to go in home depot and just, there's a pair of scissors that I sketched out one day and now they're on the shelf at home depot. It's cool stuff. Um, but yeah, if you just say like, what are big, big dreams? Um, we've had some interactions recently because there's a lot of energy in NASA. I mean, I would love to take a car that could walk and put it on the moon. I mean, that's really where I'd want to go next. That's great. Now, you have the things that you've done, all right, wide range, and you have hopes and dreams for even wider range. And now we do have to somewhat limit ourselves. We mostly work within the automotive space or in manufacturing and engineering space. Now, we see a lot of changes in the automotive world. Now, I believe that there are a lot of changes coming, but then I also believe that a lot of the things that we currently have, we're still going to have. I mean, the way we move in our vehicles, I'm sure a lot of it will be the same. But where do you see the big changes coming um, for the automotive or transportation if we're going back to individual transportation? Where do I think they'll go or where do I want them to go? <laughs> I think the practicality would say where do you think they're going to go? Where do I think they're going to go? Well, I think we've all sat here and been a little... Uh, I think some of us are probably more validated that this euphoric aut autonomous future hasn't come as fast as many thought. I think the realist in us kind of sat back a decade ago and said, nah, that's really exciting and we're going to be, you know, in fully autonomous vehicles by 2025. And I mean, that's a year and a half away and, you know, they're, they're getting there. But to say it's like the average vehicle, no, it's not there. It never it didn't happen as fast as we all thought it might. Um, so that that transition is exciting to me to understand what you can do from a, a time perspective. What do I do with my time in a vehicle? Because that really, I think, also was was no one could have predicted the pandemic. But that really changed people's calculation of time. Oh, my gosh, I don't have to commute to work anymore. I only have a half-hour commute. Sometimes, like, we, we're a flex studio, so we're in the office half, half the week, and half the week you're at home. And sometimes you're like, man, I just I don't have, I don't have that half hour. i got to get right into this meeting. You know, i got a, you know, an international call that starts right away. I can't. I don't have time to be in the car. But what if you actually could be in the car? And what if you could plan your meeting to be the exact amount of time you set your commute to. So I like to think about what are we doing with our time and how do we transition to that point and how much time do I have to have my hands on the wheel? I'm an enthusiast. I love driving. Not everybody does. So could we separate the I want to drive time from the I need to drive time? Right? I mean, that that is very important to me because I drive a lot. I have a very long commute, normally two to three hours per day, which is insane. That's a lot. But I like driving. I don't even know how to turn on the cruise control in my car. I don't know how. I don't use it. And people say, you mean to tell me that you're on the freeway that long? You don't know. I don't use yeah. the cruise control. I don't care about that. I want comfortable, but I don't care about those features. Mm -hmm. But yet I, when you talk about time, it's like that would be valuable for me if I could recognize and use that time for other things. Mm -hmm. Yes, I enjoy the drive, but let's say if I could get half of that time back be, to be usable to me for other avenues. I mean, it's wonderful to ask as a question, 
do we have any type of answers? Yeah, and that's where you are seeing people with the those that have gotten to that advanced level of highway super cruise and and Tesla and, and GM are 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 you know some of the first ones to get to market with that. And that's where you you go on YouTube and see people checking out. I get on the highway, I go go into autopilot mode and 45 minutes later, okay, yeah. And they're not like you know, they shouldn't be falling asleep, but we know, we've all seen the videos. Um, <laughs> so, but you could turn that, right? You could turn that moment into, can can I take this 45 minutes and now be productive with that? And what do I do with it? And what? how does the interior adapt? And do we have more intelligent safety systems? Are seats more intelligent? Do they move with you? Those are the things that I think are going to be exciting challenges. We've worked on some of the, those projects getting there um but you you run into a lot of issues with regulation and the blurred lines between l2 l3 l4 and um what does that that mean from a safety but i think about our team likes to think about that from what does that mean not from a regulations perspective what does that mean from a trust perspective it's all about the user's trust am i willing to let go and how do i relax and now make use of that time doing something else and what is the tipping point between killing that time on your phone and now actually doing something that i need to do like you know if you give anybody 12 minutes what are you gonna do with 12 minutes you're not gonna do anything with 12 minutes you're just gonna go through your phone and swipe a couple of emails and check social or read the news or something like that but if you would now say oh yeah i got 45 minutes 45 minutes you start to feel guilty like wasting i gotta do i don't me personally i i want to do something with 45 minutes if you give me that in the car now great and from a modeling perspective i love the idea we've had this conversation about what if you could book a ride share that was slower that's a wild idea to ask it because everybody's all about speed right but what if calculated my time to destination was 27 minutes and i'm sitting here going actually i've got a 40 minute meeting can i make it 40 minutes because how many times have you sat in your car because you got to a parking lot early and you're just like finishing your call sitting in the car so what if you actually could book a ride pay less because it went slower and used less energy to get you there but it was actually the time you needed to get there and arrive there that's i mean that's kind of it's a lot of modeling and systems that we need to get into that but that, idea. that to me is pretty cool but what about uh, the commute in three dimensions you, you seen anything on like ev tolls yeah we've we've done a uh you can see on our, our website a little conceptual project that we did um and it's yeah that one's it's, it's very far out there it's really exciting. I mean, anyone who's a dreamer, when you say, the f what's the shortest distance between two locations? It's a straight line. I'm just going to go from here to there, and I'm going to cut right through it all. Um, like anything, it's those new technologies are going to start at such a high price point that really how do they trickle down to mass transit or you know, I don't want I don't want eVTOL to just to turn into basically high dollar helicopter services. You know, for the wealthy, I think that's really where I'd want to see how do we model this in a way where it really can actually be like the revolution that that ride sharing was. 
And that's very far off. So I would love to tackle that. And what is that? How do you mix the free space of the air and FEA regulations and all that? But then how do you actually bring that down to what we all want it to be, which is it shows up in the front of this building and you get in it and it takes me straight to my house and drops me off in my driveway. Getting from the, here where we are in 2023 to that ideal, there's so many things to work on. So I, I, I'd love to work on them more. So I'm not getting my flying car now. <laughs> <laughs> so I had said to a friend of mine, he works um, for an electric car startup that also is in the autonomous space. And I was kind of poo-pooing on the idea of autonomous vehicles. And I said, because it's not taking me where I want to go. He says, well, what do you mean? All right, my house sits 400 feet off the road. My driveway has two turns in it, mm -hmm. and it also splits. So am I going to go down that side? Am I going to go down this side? Am I parking on the left of the garage, or am I parking on the right of the garage? I said, I can't put in an address and have my vehicle take me where I want to go. And he says, well, our philosophy is that vehicle is never going into your driveway. That vehicle staying on the road, drops you off in front of the house, continues on the road to pick up its next, type, its next customer. I understand that. And I think that that may be more immediate of a solution rather than me owning my own autonomous car that is parking me in my driveway. Mm -hmm. And I could see that, as you were saying for that um, VTOL too. Mm -hmm. If it is taking me home, is there space for it to park? If it is bringing me here to the office, where is it landing in the parking lot mm -hmm. to allow me to enter? Those are the fine details. But I think it's... I would let the fine detail kill the concept, and that's wrong. The concept should still survive, and then the details could be worked out later. What is your philosophy in thinking about that? Do you, do you let things hold you back too early? Well, I, I would say I try not to, of course. Okay. Um, and it's good to have a mix in a team. It's okay to have people on a team that are going to point out, you know, things to be aware of but if that encompasses an entire team it's just going to be a room of people saying why well, you can't do something yeah. and i want to always make sure that we have enough voices in a room or on a project that are the opposite and saying eh, maybe you can do something or even just saying you should do something um and so exploring that yeah yeah it's uh it, we want we have a team that's half designers and half engineers for the reason though of making sure that everything we're working on has some validity, some feasibility. And I know my passion and as, you know, innovation strategy grows, my goal is, I don't know, I say like it's, it's, it's our job to pull things out of the blue sky and put them down on the, on the ground, you know, bring it to reality. So I want to start with that blue sky, but I do want to make sure that it hits the ground and has a, a path forward. Because if they just stay up there in the, you know, oh, the magic of the what ifs, well, who's going to get funding for that? Or how are you going to sell that to an executive? Or how are you going to get, you know, we work with startups and small companies as well. How are you going to get that next round of investment? You got to show short wins. That's really what it is, right? I mean, everybody needs like a quick win. And sometimes you need that next point. So defining what is going to be your next point of success is really important when you have super long goals. So that's fine. Put that like three-year, five-year, 10-year target out there, but make a roadmap that says, 
What's going to keep us running as a company? What's going to keep this project alive six months from now? Can we hit that goal? And they should always point towards that North Star. But, you know, that's where I can, I can put my dreamer, you know, hat, you know, to the side for a second and just say, well, how, do, how do we get through the next six months? How do we get to the next year? And that'll just keep the team going, keep so these projects alive. I, I would think with startups, that would be a, an easy argument to, to get someone to agree to. But what about the more established like a General Motors sort of company, would they have that attitude, you think? Yeah, actually, actually a lot of times they start there. Yeah. I was going <laughs> to think that would actually be the opposite. Really? I think a lot of the startups are more the pie-in-the-sky type of a dream, and they sell the dream without actually having the product to back it up a lot of times in mm -hmm, my mind. Mm -hmm. um, whereas I think a lot of the more traditional OEMs, they have to see it working now, which is why I always used to joke is they want to be the first to be second. They don't want to blaze the trail as often because they don't want to eat up that capital. Yeah, that the time. big the big companies end up in iterations. Yeah. It's 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 just an evolution. It's not revolutionary. It's evolutionary because our you know our dial can only move so far, and we're only at maximum three years out on the next project. So we might do really blue sky stuff, but when you actually get down to it, it's it's really hard to get them to move past next year kind of mentality yeah that was the difficulty that i had with innovation when i worked in the innovation group we would have product and process process as i said we would use internally but product i never once sold anything from product to the oems we had two showrooms we had the normal showroom which was all the products we currently make mm -hmm. and then that innovation showroom with all the impressive things and when we would bring them in for meetings, we would host our meetings in the main showroom. And then we'd open those back doors and take them into innovation. Mm -hmm. And they would ooh and ah, and then someone from purchasing would say, here's your bill to print. Mm -hmm. Now here, make what we've already designed that we have decided we want. And it was hard to really get that innovation to trickle into anything that was new. I totally know what you're saying. I've seen it. I've been in those conversations. I've heard suppliers, you know, tell heartbreaking stories of of that and and so, and and you know sometimes it's actually just a supplier saying well we pitched that idea 5 years ago and then all of a sudden the OE has a new manager and that manager thinks it's their idea yeah and now all of a sudden the cash is flowing they come back and they're like can you guys do this and you're sitting they're sitting there going yeah we did we pitched this 5 years ago we've been sitting on the table uh, now that you want it okay now we're going to do it <laughs> And so I, I will say, just to the suppliers out there that, that I've, I've spent a lot of time with over the last 10 years, the times I've seen it work is when there is really robust effort put into the storytelling that shows that the supplier has looked at the use cases and the personas, and they're a thought leader, not just the manufacturer. So I've had a few supplier clients that come in. We partner together on a project. They go, okay, we're not just going to go to the OE with this IP technology, but we're actually going to do a persona research study. We're going to validate this idea with these different personas, and we're going to go to the OE and say, not only do we have this capability, but we've already looked at your brands, and we've aligned the solution with these two brands, and this is the consumer segment it's going to work for, and here's why. So what that does is now put the supplier in the position of being the thought leader. 
And the OEs do love it when they can just say, I've got a problem. Yeah, you know what? Sorry, you didn't get that contract. So, yeah, I, I went to see your CES booth and I saw your innovation and you tried to pitch it to me and I just I didn't take it. But if I left that meeting and I now know when I have my idea that I'm willing to pay for, who am I calling? And that's where I've seen it work, where they come back to then the spires and who is the thought leader? Who's got the insights? Sure, everybody can build the print. Everybody can get it for the right cost. Where's your differentiator, though? So those are the times where it, to me, is the most impactful to get into that level of product development on the supplier side. Now, you had said try and get a quick win. And a quick win to help move a program forward is very important. It's having any type of success is very important. I also think it's important to have a quick failure as well. Um, we used to say in some of the projects that we worked on, fail fast is cheaper. Mm-hmm. Um, because if you allow someone's personality, if they have something that they really believe in or it's a pet project, it can drag on and on and on and eat up resources, but it may or may not be practical. Have you worked on any projects that in the end you determined this is a failure or this should not go forward? Hmm. Within the context of a final project deliverable, I that's a hard one to say. Have, have I actually gotten to a point where we said at the end of a project, there this just doesn't work? It happens so then, in projects. In project, or yeah. probably even in quoting, uh, you've probably ha- denied projects if someone comes to you with something that's too, I don't want to say out of scope, but maybe too out there. I'd say more often it's a question of where is this coming from? And if this is just coming from your own hunch, then we sit back and go, okay, well, where's the opportunity? And that's really the misconnection that I, I think is is more often that um, there really hasn't been due diligence put into understanding who needs this, how many people need this, why do they need it? And that's where then we would say, mm, I'm not sure this is going to work. Um, so that that's probably where I, I see most like most of the time where we have conversations to say no to something. Don't do this um, at that level. Now, the failing part of it is just when you actually get into trying it and prototyping it. And that's all about making make something. I mean, in the design world, there's you know a bunch of taglines and hashtags around just make things. And so totally with you on that, like build a prototype, get it in a shop, get it in your hands, or if it's a UI, like throw together a, a, a quick touchscreen app or something and just, just try it. You know, I think we often rely too much on like virtual simulation hypothesis space where we're kind of just talking around an idea and you just need to make it, make things. And so we have a shop in our office. We will do this even with research clinics. So like we did a product in the tooling industry, um, like like Home Depot tools. And we brought in a bunch of contractors and just brought them in. And we, you know, they call it co-creation, right? But we were bringing in a bunch of tools that already existed in the market. And we were talking about how do you measure and how do you lay out your four by eight sheet of plywood? And, you know, let's look at some mock-ups and then make some things. And we're cutting it out of foam core plywood. We got a laser cutter, you know, bend some sheet metal and make something. You'll figure it out a lot quicker than if you just sat there, like, drawing it out and, 
tweaking your CAD model a hundred times. <laughs> you know, just get it out of the CAD space. Get get it physical. All right, we are approaching an hour. I have a couple questions. Um, what so from car design? What are some car designs that you really like, and what do you think are just hot garbage? And the second part of that. Oh, God, you can't put me. I I need clients in the future if you're going to tell me. Why are so many cars today look the same? And what do you drive? You you said you you design the car. You drive. Yeah, I have a Celine Mustang. And uh, my daily is a a Volvo V60 wagon. Um, Okay, give me a second here to think about. Like,. I had to think about who I would say something negative about now I would say that. We'll start with uh, what car designs, past or present, that you really like. Well, currently, right now, I really love what, and, and this is not because they've been a client of mine, but honestly, what Hyundai and Kia is doing is fantastic from a just a pure styling perspective. When I think about sketching and form language and brand identity, the the EV9 SUV that they just came out with is so fresh. And it has all the elements as a classic car designer you look for. You want to have proportion and, and stance. That SUV has amazing stance. Um, the graphical elements that are on the fender flares And when you squint your eyes, if you look at a vehicle, can you see three shapes? Can you remember three shapes right away? And when you squint your eyes at that vehicle, oh, my gosh, those shapes just pop out, and they're really strong. Um, So their their SUVs they've come out with just this year um, are incredible. Second question. (laughs) Who is Hot Garbage? I would it's this is a really difficult thing for me to say because if you look at the EV9 let's look at another SUV and I I I know a lot of designers out there we pass each other text messages there are boards and threads about this and it's hard to even understand how one company can come out with absolutely amazing vehicles and then absolutely head scratchers and BMW right now is just puzzling. Their iX SUV is just the opposite of good proportion. And the it just doesn't represent sport. It's a driving enthusiast brand. And the stiffness and the side of the, the view of, of the, the rear bumper proportions and just all of that is so perplexing. And the form language is innovative. And it's actually very similar to what he is doing from a form language perspective, the geometry and the crispness and how they're playing with surfacing. But it comes back to just the shape of the vehicle. So that one's a real a real head scratcher, that particular line of what they've been doing with those crossovers and SUVs because we, as all designers, love BMW. And at the same time, they have some awesome vehicles out right now and their interiors are 
killer. I love their interiors on the IX. The interior is, to me, amazing. And when I'm at their shows at CES, I mean, they have some of the most innovative thoughts in their um, uh, uh, D vehicle that was there that had the uh, dynamic transparent display windows, and then they could turn displays on on the windows. And, and, the, and the dynamic belt line that had um, sensors to identify a person approaching the vehicle, and then it could actually let you know it sees you. Awesome innovation. Um, but from an exterior styling, it's, it's, it's some strange stuff going on there. So this actually goes into another topic that we had talked about for a while. Current vehicles, where do you see they are currently going too far? Sometimes in an industry, there needs to be a reset. And what do you feel that reset may need to be applied to? Yeah. So th there's a there's like an arms race going on in terms of just features. And the market is paying for it. And we all know and can all say, okay, it's inflation and car value prices have just gone up. But it's not just inflation. It's the overhead and the R&D costs that the OEMs are having to build into the price of the vehicles to put in all of these features that they're in an arms race. And some of them are great. And I get hired to come up with new features. So I'm not saying that there aren't good features. But the question is, how many of them are really meaningful? And I bet you there's a lot of people that would love to take out 50 features of their vehicle and drop the price 20,000 and they would jump at that car. So there's some features that you get so used to, you're like, I can't live without that. Like once you have backup cameras, you kind of just almost form a habit. Then you get in a vehicle without a backup camera and you like, oh my gosh, I got to turn my head for a second. So it's just, it, you know, there are features that have been life-changing, um, but there's so many things in, in, the, in the vehicles and too many features. For example, we did a workshop in the SUV market and the, the OEM we were with, they were looking at one of the other competitors that was coming out with their brand new SUV and the feature list was so long. And our client was like, you could tell they were actually like intimidated and scared and sitting there going, their engineers are going, how do they have that many features in the vehicle? We're gonna ne we're never gonna be able to come out with that many features. We can't we can't get that done for that, our price point. We got the vehicle in, the, in in our workshop, and it was hot garbage. <laughs> and because you could totally tell that they said we are gonna do these twenty seven features, but and and the, and the price of the vehicle was higher than it ever had been, and yet none of them were done really really well. The, the third row was really suspicious. The touch screens literally flexed when you just pressed on the touch screen. Like, I can't believe this touch screen is like flexing and it's not a demo vehicle. This is like a first production vehicle. And you just went down the list and you're like, well, okay, yeah, when you throw the kitchen sink in there, you can't do any of them great. You, you had a longer feature list than everyone else and you rose the price of your vehicle. And, I, and we all sat back there and I would totally take the one next door that has 13 features. I, I was just, I would always laugh at the marketing people when they would bring them into the meetings with the engineers because they wanted to tick a box. They wanted to tick a box, whether it was actually an appropriate product, whether it was designed well, they were oblivious to that. They wanted to tick a box. 
I did a leather interior for a vehicle a few years ago. The leather that was chosen by purchasing to get it at the price point that marketing needed to be able to sell it at, the stuff felt like tire rubber. It was real genuine leather, but it was terrible. In my assembly line right next to it, we had one that was made of an artificial material, but it was a great artificial material that felt better than this genuine leather on the competitive product that was real, but it was just bad. So I can, I completely understand the fact that some features check a box, but for the vehicle shouldn't exist. For the customer, does not actually give them the benefit that they think that they're getting. Yeah, so as, so as an innovation team, I love to work with someone who's brave enough to say less is more. It's kind of like what we were talking about earlier. Could you be brave enough to actually tell your sales team you're going to reduce the amount of features in next year's model? Try to get that one sold. But if you were able to say, yeah, we're going to go to half the amount of features on the sales checklist, but they're going to be done better, and the price point is going to match consumers' expectations. Like, the average person can't afford the average car right now. And I bet you there's a ton of stuff in there that they don't even care about. So to me, a, a big passion of mine is in, in our, our collaborations with companies is prioritization. How do you prioritize? How do you get down to what's really meaningful? Um, so I, I see this runaway arms race happening and vehicles are pricing out the economy, right? You know, we can't even afford our own cars now. Let, let's, 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 you said it, hit, hit the reset button. Let's refigure this out. And I mean, one example is the Maverick. Yeah. The Maverick, I mean, Ford just said, we're going to try and do a $20,000 pickup truck, bare bones. They can't make them enough. And people are paying more of that. People are over, you know, spending over sticker on it because it just, it was the right idea. Yeah, it's a great truck. Well, David, thank you very much for coming today. Um, I like learning about your experience because honestly, I'm quite jealous of it. I wish that I would have been able to move a little farther down that route with the research and innovation that I was in. But I see that you go past the product and more to the why. And the big picture is, I think, very impressive. It's important to me. And a lot of people I don't think would really understand that there are people who are thinking not just about the what, but the why and thinking big picture. So thank you for sharing your experience and how you would go about approaching a problem, thinking big picture first, before you get into the details. Thanks. This was a, a great time. And I, I do feel really blessed to have had the experiences I've had and um, really excited about the next 20 years. Thank you for listening to the Monroe Life Podcast. If you liked today's episode, and please be sure to rate and review us. Thank you to my co-host, Paul Lester, our special guest, David Byron from Sunbrook Farrar, and to our producer, Eric. Follow us on Twitter, MonroeLife underscore pod, and to view our episodes by subscribing to our YouTube channel, at Monroe Live Podcast. Thanks, and see you next time.